welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Gagliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, uh, the Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always good to be here. All right. Uh, it's great to have you on the show again. It always seems timely. There's always something uh, of interest to discuss with you. Um, the last time you joined me uh, a couple months ago, or less than two months ago, I think we spoke about the Wagner mercenary group leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. The context then was Prigozhin's claim, which was echoed by President Vladimir Putin, that Russian forces, uh, mostly Prigozhin's, mostly Wagner forces, had taken the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut in its entirety after many months of deadly fighting uh, that left this once pleasant city in ruins. Ukraine denied the Russian claim, uh, saying they still held part of the city. Uh, and another piece of context um, for our discussion was a Washington Post report saying that leaked U.S. intelligence documents indicated that Prigozhin offered to give Ukraine information about Russian troop positions if Kiev withdrew its forces from Bakhmut. But that report, uh, I would say, seemed to have little resonance in Russia, and Putin praised uh, Wagner for its role in Bakhmut. Now, less than two months later, the situation is radically different. Wagner forces carried out a stunning, if short-lived, mutiny on June 23rd, 24th, with one contingent essentially seizing the large city of Rostov-on-Don, which is the military hub for Russia's war on Ukraine, while I guess it was another group uh, advanced uh, to within 200 kilometers of Moscow, at least according to Prigozhin, uh, before Prigozhin abruptly called the whole thing off. Uh, under a purported agreement with the Kremlin, purportedly brokered by Belarusian autocrat Alexander Lukashenko, Prigozhin is going to live in Belarus, though it's far from clear whether he is there now uh, and really whether he intends to go there. Lukashenko said last week that Prigozhin was in Russia. Um, it's also unclear whether any Wagner fighters will actually join him if he does settle there, uh, though there are... Uh, there's apparently a, at least one camp or base that's being set up uh, ostensibly for Wagner. Now, an, another th- uh, uh, a development that, that uh, came to light today, uh, the Kremlin said that, I think this was first a report and then the Kremlin confirmed or acknowledged that um, Prigozhin met on June 29th, five days after the mutiny, uh, with Putin and I think the National Guard Chief Zolotov and the head of foreign intelligence, Narishkin. Um, so that was, I think, part of an attempt to uh, indicate that Putin is in control, uh, though what it says about you know, meeting with someone who is just, you've just called a traitor is, is uh, another question. Uh, so those are just many of the, a few of the many things that are kind of unclear about the mutiny and its ramifications. Uh, but Mark, you've suggested that the causes are fairly clear. Um, 
if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in an article in The Economist, you wrote that, quote, the most serious challenge to Vladimir Putin's 23-year reign came as a direct result of the way he has structured his regime and from a man who owed his wealth and power to the president's patronage, that is, Prigozhin. Mark, we'll get to the ramifications later, but first, could you elaborate a little on this? Um, tell us more about the cause and effect here, if that's the right wording. Sure. Well, look, I mean, I think this sounds like a truly bizarre story in many ways, but that's essentially because we're looking looking at it from the perspective of Western 21st century folk. Were we in the Middle Ages or even the early modern period, we would actually regard it as being much, much more commonplace. This would, could be considered to be an act of coercive negotiation. There's absolutely no reason to think that Prigozhin was trying to topple Putin or to take the Kremlin or similar. It's not even as if he could, if he could take the Kremlin, he'd suddenly sort of magically become a czar. This is not some kind of video game after all. Instead, sensing that the politics of the situation had turned dramatically against him, frankly, never, ever take on Shoigu in a, a political struggle. He is a very, very wily operator who tends to work best behind the scenes. But anyway, there was a point where basically all the mercenaries were being told they had until the 1st of July to sign contracts with the defence ministry. Prigozhin, I think, rightly saw this as an attack on his autonomy. And the, the key unit, I mean, although his Concord business empire was much larger than just Wagner, but nonetheless, it was Wagner at the time that really gave and gives Prigozhin his, his power and his leverage. And he thought he was going to lose that. So this was a, a last-ditch attempt to try and show his, his will, his strength, hoping to flush out allies in order to persuade Putin to side with him rather than with Shoigu. And obviously, it failed. Um, what's striking is, on the one hand, that the lack of support for Prigozhin's mutiny Prigozhin himself had said with characteristic hyperbole that he imagined that half the army would join him. Well, I think the last count was something like 70 guys, which does not quite represent half the Russian army, even in its current attenuated state. But on the other hand, nor really was anyone willing to fight Wagner. Everyone was basically sort of willing to basically wait and see. That wasn't good enough, especially once Putin had come out with his very sort of tough statement, calling this a stab in the back and, and, and such like. So in some ways, Prigozhin had, had few options by that stage. But this is the thing. What we saw was a particularly extreme, but otherwise not unusual example of Russian power politics under Putin. He has created this political system with constant feuding, overlapping interest groups, rivalries between individuals. Essentially, it is built for internecine conflicts within the elite, because the idea is then precisely that gives Putin the opportunity to be the great decider, to be the one who chooses who wins and who loses, and who steps in to resolve the competitions. Everyone is too busy fighting each other to pose any kind of challenge to him. Well, that's, that's fine as long as it works. But from time to time, the risk is, especially when, as at the moment, Putin is pretty much AWOL. He's really not doing his job in this respect. It means that you suddenly get these flare-ups that actually do pose a, a real systemic challenge, I would say, to the system. So that's really what, what, what was going on. I think it was an attempt by one baron, one boyar, to influence the monarch against another. The sort of thing that, after all, Kadyrov does all the time. 
But in Prigozhin's case, it turned out he had rather less leverage than Kadyrov. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, yeah, interesting point about Kadyrov. Um, now let's get to the possible ramifications. Um, a lot of people are talking about how weakened Putin is. In the Economist article, you wrote that the mutiny left Putin more vulnerable than ever. So my question is, how vulnerable is he now? And apologies, um, that may already be a broad question, but I'd like to hear some of your thoughts as well on what this all may mean um, for Putin, but also for Prigozhin, um, for Russia, and for Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, if you can fit a little bit of that. <laughs> but, but no one else. Okay. Um, yeah, look, I mean, there is a danger. In some ways, I have to start with a caveat that we're not talking about the possibility that Putin is going to fall from power next Wednesday. Um, there is a certain amount of hyperbole around. From my point of view, this is, shall I say, the beginning of the end. But the one thing we don't know is the timeline. We could be talking weeks. We could be talking months. We're much more likely to be talking years. But the point is this. Look, Putin generally, if one looks at his system, I would suggest that there have been three key pillars on which his system has rested. One of them is Putin himself his legitimacy with the wider Russian public, but also his capacity to control the elite. The second one is Putin's capacity to throw money at problems. I mean, back in the, back in the day, this is what would happen. He would you know, descend on some region or some city which had some particular challenge. He would berate the local oligarch or governor, and suddenly he would shake the money tree and there would be resources to address whatever the problem was. And thirdly, his control over the security apparatus. Well, if we think about those three pillars, I mean, the money issue is one easiest to dispense with. I mean, although on paper, Russia has very healthy financial reserves. The point is that firstly, a large chunk of those are currently locked away in the West, frozen. And the rest is either earmarked for the war or actually very hard to, to use in any practical terms. I mean, in some ways, the Russian state is a little bit like a, a late Soviet consumer. You may have rubles in your pocket, but if there's nothing in the shops to buy, that's no great advantage. So the money isn't there. He, he can't throw as much resource at various problems that arise. Think of the other two pillars. First of all, Putin, his authority, his legitimacy and his control over the elite. Well, look, it's very hard to adequately assess the sort of popularity, the respect of Putin, especially as this regime sort of tips from authoritarianism into a kind of early totalitarianism. And therefore, we can't rely on opinion polls and the usual measures of sort of approval ratings, which are always very iffy. I mean, we must remember that, you know, although Putin tends to have approval ratings in the 80%, which are the kind of approval ratings that uh, you know, any Western politician will be overjoyed by, at the same time, he has trust ratings, usually more in the 30 percent, which you know, one could say, well, it's because Russians don't expect their, their leaders to be trustworthy. But I think also reflects the fact that the approval ratings are kind of for Putin as icon of Russia, whereas Putin, the human being, Putin, the politician, are best reflected by the trust ratings, especially because those trust ratings tend to map across quite closely to the support for the United Russia bloc. So, you know, there's, there's been this red steady decay, I would suggest, in Putin's authority. And the war clearly has 
accelerated that process. You know, and it's quite striking how much you find in online discourse and so forth, people referring to him as things like dead grandfather, and not in a kind of loving and respectful way, but to give that sense of that this is an old man, and particularly sort of in context of Navalny's very on-point jibe of the old man in the bunker. But the key thing, after all, is his control over the elite. And I think one of the things that really came out from this mutiny is exactly, as I said before, the degree to which Putin is not doing his job. One of his key functions, and arguably the function that he cannot outsource to anyone else, and it's not like running the economy that he can leave it to Prime Minister Mishustin and Central Bank Chair Nabulina, you know, is actually the final control of these elite disputes. He is meant to be on top of them. He's meant to know what's going on. If nothing else, he gets a daily briefing from the Federal Protection Service precisely on elite politics. He's meant to allow and encourage these disputes while they're politically advantageous. But as soon as they become systemically dysfunctional, he should step in to resolve them. Now, this, this whole shoigu prigozhin struggle has been brewing for months, becoming increasingly explosive. People have been warning Putin that this is the case. But Putin, I think, in my opinion, paralyzed because he doesn't like making tough decisions and he found himself unsure whether he should side with Shoigu or Prigozhin. He could see too many downsides on both sides. Anyway, he, he let it continue to the point where it became explosive like this. So again, I, I think this has also distinctly undermined what remaining sense there is that this is the one man who can and is controlling the elite. And finally, that third pillar, control of the security apparatus. I would say this is the first time we've had a real test of that, certainly in recent years. And in that context, I mean, what's really striking is, as I said, that essentially, I mean, yes, ultimately, people weren't going to allow Prigozhin to storm Moscow. But to a large extent, people just thought, well, you know, I don't want to get off the fence one way or the other. Let's just see what happens. It's not my problem. When Wagner rolled into Rostov-on-Don, there's a substantial garrison there. There's also a substantial National Guard force there. Neither of them contested the city. Basically, both of them decided that it was a good time to stay in their barracks and, I don't know, whitewash the walls. Likewise, it was only a few elements of the Air Force that tried to stop Wagner's movement towards Moscow and indeed suffered for it. But uh, obviously their, their uh, sacrifice has been in turn... Uh, disappeared because it's no longer politically useful. In practice, this was a case in which Putin's control of the security apparatus was tested and been proven to be lackluster, to say the least. I understand that Zolotov spent most of that fateful Saturday on the phone trying to contact local regional commanders of the National Guard in the crucial areas to try and get them to do what they can to stop or slow Wagner and that most of the commanders made a great effort not to be contactable by phone, precisely because they wanted to avoid being given direct orders, which they would either have to execute or directly flout. Instead, this way they could hide behind this notion of, well, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I didn't have direct orders. Now, put all that up together, and, and therefore Putin comes out of this crisis weaker than he went in. And I think this is one of the patterns we see. Systemic crises happening. And they, they can be all sorts of things. I mean, the mutiny is one form, but it, you know, it could be a, a collapse of the front lines in, in, in Ukraine. It could be sort of economic problems, whatever. And 
Putin may survive them, but he survives them each time weaker. And at some point, there will come that crisis that he's unable to deal with, that either pushes the elite into making some kind of tough decisions as to whether or not they they feel that the risk of moving against him is outweighed by the risk of actually just sitting back and, and hoping that things work out. Or he himself might actually find himself forced to, 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 to do something, you know, to, whether it's to step down or, or, or whatever else. But this is the thing. I mean, we don't know which black swans will next flutter over the Kremlin and what, what they're going to be. They, they may be relatively minor ones. I mean, this is Wagner one. I mean, it, it was great for the news cycle, but it wasn't truly existential for the Putin regime. I mean, if nothing else, 4,000 Wagner troops could not have taken Moscow and they would probably would have been stopped on the Oka River, as, as the plan was. But nonetheless, crises are mounting. The resources that Putin's got to deal with them are more limited. And at some point, you know, the crisis will, 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 will be genuinely existential. Now, what, what does all this mean in the big picture? I'm not going to try and cycle through all the different possibilities. I mean, look, for Ukraine and the war, Actually, in the short term, this doesn't really have much of an impact. Wagner was not in the battle line after all. It was being reconstituted, licking its wounds. It's been through, after all, a real meat grinder in the Bakhmut battle. And therefore, I think it was being held as a reserve force, one of the reinforcements available if and when the Ukrainians break through the main defensive lines, which they've not done yet. So, you know, if in the course of the next few weeks or even month or so, the Ukrainians do do that, then the Russians will have fewer reserves left. I mean, as is already, many of them are already committed. They still have some paratroopers left and some others. But Wagner was a, you know, let's be honest, a pretty tough force. Essentially, they had been bled largely of their unskilled convict soldiers. And those who are left are on the whole you know, veteran ex-military. Um, so that's no longer around. I don't honestly think, I don't see many signs that Wagner fighters are flocking to join the regular military or other mercenary units. In due course, they may, they may go to, to Belarus as and when Prigozhin does. I think you know, Prigozhin's been given a stay of execution, time to go around tidying up his business and so forth. But I think he is ultimately expected to go to Minsk and probably a fan of Wagner fighters will, will, will go with him. So I think the, the effect on the Ukraine war is a potential one in the future rather than right now. I mean, more broadly, the sort of, you know, the final thing is we have to acknowledge the degree to which there was, there was, a, there was a good piece by Anna Rutunyan in the Spectator Coffeehouse blog uh, about a week ago that Putin always, in some ways, plays successfully the weakness card of all things. That the thought of Russia collapsing, falling into anarchy, nuclear armed warlord states emerging and so forth is one that actually is quite useful here for him sometimes because it stays the hand of the west sometimes makes them feel oh we don't want to push too hard we don't we don't want to risk massive destabilization the thing is though the more fragile the russian state becomes ironically the more weak it is the less i think effective that that, that card is because what happens is we begin to adjust to the thought of a post-Putin era. It's only just happening. And I think it's something that we've done way, way too slowly. I mean, if I think of most countries, most of the Western countries, I really don't think they have seriously thought about it. I think maybe the French perhaps are one of the exceptions. Um, 
but I think actually the, the weaker that Putin becomes, the more we begin to get our heads around the idea that there will be some kind of post-Putin Russia and begin to adapt our policy, therefore. And that means that we are more willing to contemplate that post-Putin Russia. And so I think Putin will be less able to play the, oh, things could be worse after me, mate, card. Uh, thanks, Mark. That's fascinating. I mean, and that that um, that warning, things could be worse after me. You know, they've been using that. Putin certainly used that throughout. I think his his uh, time, his long time as president, and prime minister. And particularly, and... I mean, he evoked the, the time of troubles, the smuta. In this mm-hmm. again, this you know what happened after Ivan the Terrible um, reign. And again, that that is still. I mean, it may, it may have been centuries ago, but it's still sort of quite a powerful thing in, in the Russian psyche, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I mean, it's striking that, that he uses that, that, you know, as you say, plays the weakness card sometimes while often uh, accusing the West of being out to destroy Russia. Um, so it's sort of like, you're, you're out to destroy us. Uh, what is the, the term? Strategic defeat. Um, but I'm also going to threaten you with the, with the idea of a, of a destroyed or a, a Russia that, that's falling apart and is extremely dangerous for, for other countries as well. So I guess he's trying to have it both ways in a way. Uh, thanks also for the, that was some good detail about, um, I guess, what sounds like a fairly frantic effort uh, by Zolotov to, you know, to contact National Guard uh, commanders um, and that kind of, paints a picture of what, what I guess was going on uh, and kind of the, I mean, it's still, it's quite amazing. I mean, to anyone who's been watching Russia, I think, or maybe to anyone who has it also, just the idea of this, you know, the, these, this, this force, as you say, you know, um, not one that could have taken Moscow, but this force uh, advancing through Russia, taking a city of a million people, essentially. Um, um, and, and yet, a couple of weeks later, you know, things are different in some ways. And, and, you know, there's obviously things that have, that have shifted in a significant way, as you're, as you're saying. But, but in some ways, things are, are remaining similar to, to how they were. I mean, there's always a danger in overplaying, I think, uh, Wagner's success. I mean, which, which was, you know, impressive. And as I said, to a considerable extent, was because of the lack of resistance. I mean, you know, if no one is willing to resist then, you know, I could take London with a butter knife. Um, but more so, more broadly, I think it's the fact that this is almost a struggle between two dinosaurs. The Russian security forces were like, you know, a great big ponderous beast still, but slow and dim with a small brain atop a very long neck, trying desperately to turn around and find where the, where the hell Wagner was, particularly because Wagner fighters, they... You know, they were quite sophisticated in how they operated. They broke up into lots of small groups. They moved along multiple roadways, sort of dispersing and then reconvening and such like. So in some ways, it was this great big beast trying to turn around, trying to spot this this arty little velociraptor scrambling around its, its feet. If it could ever get the little dinosaur into a place where it could stomp its, its foot on it, then it could squash it without any tr- trouble. But so long as it couldn't, then the small dinosaur was able to to scurry around pretty much unhindered. So, you know, I mean, I think one one has to acknowledge still, it is not as if 
the Russian security apparatus is that weak. I mean, like uh, people at the time were suggesting, well, this just shows that Ukraine should sort of invade via Belgorod. Well, look, if it had been Ukrainian forces rather than fellow Russian forces, I think there would have been vastly less ambiguity in how the various Russian commanders would, would have responded. So, I mean, I think it's a, it's a situational issue as much as anything else. All right. Thanks very much. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's an interesting analogy. Prigozhin said, I, I think he said, oh, look, essentially I could have taken Kiev in three days, which, you know, it's obviously a completely different thing and it doesn't translate mm-hmm. at all. So, um, and that's the same on the other side. All right. Well, thanks very much, Mark. Now I'd like to uh, talk briefly about the NATO summit uh, that takes place tomorrow and Wednesday in Vilnius. The focus will be uh, Ukraine, of course. Um, I'll try to summarize it briefly. It seems clear that Ukraine will not be invited uh, to join NATO at, you know, at this summit. There won't be a timetable for that. Um, but Ukraine expects to get, and I think is expected to get, something more than Ukraine and Georgia got at the alliance's Bucharest summit in 2008. Uh, which was an assurance that they would one day join NATO with zero detail about how and when uh, that might happen. Now, that statement 15 years ago was a compromise of sorts because I believe the United States wanted to give the two countries membership action plans or maps, and I believe Germany and France and maybe others did not. But it was a compromise that really didn't please anyone, arguably. In In any case, it left Ukraine and Georgia uh, with no information, no clear path, uh, you know, about when and how they might join, um, while apparently cementing for the Kremlin the idea that they would join. Um, and since then, Russia has gone to war, obviously, against both Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, Mark, uh, without asking you to predict what will happen at the summit, um, I, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the potential consequences of this meeting uh, in terms of Russia's war on Ukraine and, and its future relations with the West. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's clear that they have to have more, you know, that Ukraine has to have more than came out of Bucharest, because the, basically what Ukraine and Georgia got out of Bucharest was equivalent of a lollipop and, and a pat on the head and being told to run along now, Sonny. I mean, there, there, there was nothing really there. It was a very poor compromise, because as you said, it kind of heartened nationalists in both countries thinking that they were now under NATO's umbrella, which they weren't. But on the other hand, it solidified perceptions in Moscow that sort of NATO was some kind of hostile, intrusive force basically coming for Russia. Now, I think what what will happen now is, as, as you've indicated, yes, of course, Ukraine will not be invited to join NATO because so long as Ukraine is at war, that would be essentially tantamount to saying that NATO will now declare war on Russia. And there is absolutely zero constituency for that i have to say i'm glad to say instead it's more that we're going to be seeing all kinds of first of all just lots of affirmations that uh, nato is behind ukraine for as long as it takes and so forth there is a certain hollowness about this necessary rhetoric because it's impossible for any leader to say, yes, in a year or two years or whatever's time, we will still be committed to this, especially given certain looming elections, including some, I understand, in the United States. So I think it's more just an attempt to try and disabuse Putin of the sense that if he hangs on long enough, the Western will will start to crumble and they will start to basically 
back-channel pressurize Kyiv into some kind of an ugly piece. I don't know how successful they're going to be at that, for example, because let's be honest, you know, if, if I can rather cynically regard this as empty rhetoric, I think you'll find people in the Russian foreign ministry who are vastly more cynical than me. More to the point, I think it will be moves to try and not just sort of tell Ukraine that in due course the, the route will be open, because I think it's fairly clear that there is a strong justified constituency for bringing Ukraine into NATO when possible, but also in terms of security guarantees. And a lot of that is going to be about essentially the so-called porcupine strategy, which is to say that Ukraine will be supported and armed to the point where, in some ways, in the short term, it doesn't need NATO guarantees in a post this particular war environment, because it'll just be too tough for the Russians or anyone else to mess with. I mean, no wonder people are sort of drawing the parallel with Israel, for example. Now, again, there's going to be a bit of a problem in terms of it's all very well making guarantees, but is the material there? There's a lot of money to support Ukraine, but you can't necessarily convert money into artillery shells and the like, as we've seen with this rather controversial decision to supply cluster munitions to, to Ukraine. I mean, you know, in part, that reflects the, the current state of the war and the fact that cluster munitions are very good for trying to winkle soldiers out of trenches, given that that's very much what the Ukrainians are up against at the moment. But it also reflects the simple fact that the artillery ammunition is running out. And America has stocks of these cluster munitions banned in most of the world and thinks, well, you know, let, let's make a virtue of a necessity and, and provide them. So I think for me, I'm going to be much, much less interested in the big set piece communiques and speeches. We can be pretty you know, in a position where basically we know what everyone's going to say. This is a, you know, an unfair, unprovoked and unjustified war. We are behind Ukraine we will continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes, blah, blah, blah. That's good. And I mean, that, and I'm not trying to undermine that. I mean, that is what they should be saying. I'm going to be much more interested in the more technical behind the scenes discussions about actually how in the long term NATO countries can actually provide Ukraine the sort of support it needs. And the final point I'd make is this is also an opportunity for NATO countries to begin to flesh out, as I said, what their policy is to a post-war and maybe even post-Putin Russia, something that has been lacking up to now. There are some countries that are saying that this essentially needs to be that we, we, we treat Russia as a long-term security threat and everything is just simply about building a, a bastion against Russia, which more or less is telling the Russians, we will continue to be a threat regardless of what you do and who's in charge. Others are saying that we need to have a more flexible and positive policy, that if, you know, if the Russians are willing to change their approach, you know, the leopard is able to change its spots, then we need to reflect that. Uh, but at the moment, I think the majority of countries, frankly, don't have the will or the interest or the bandwidth to really grapple with that. So I think that is still one obvious gap in Western strategy. All right, uh, that's a great, uh, great summary. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. Um, we've gone on fairly long with uh, with this portion, um, and, and it's been fascinating. But I think we do have time for a, a couple questions, uh, if there are any. So I'll open the floor up to questions at this point. 
and see if we have any. Give it a few moments. We're still waiting. I would. I have one question that actually that goes back, uh, if you don't mind, Mark, to the first part. Um, you mentioned that kind of Kadyrov has had much more success than Prigozhin uh, with the, with this kind of thing, not a mutiny, but uh, you know, kind of using threats uh, to get what he wants. Why do you think that is? Is it is it just that Putin is more uh, concerned about what could happen with Chechnya and Kadyrov than than he is about, I guess, the military and security services? I mean, I think it's essentially because Putin and co. have convinced themselves, I think wrongly, but there you go, that Kadyrov is absolutely essential to keeping Chechnya under control. They are terrified of the thought, at the best of times, of being finding themselves having to fight a third Chechen, yeah, third Chechen war, particularly in the current context when they're, they're, they're busy mired in, in Ukraine. And therefore, Kadyrov has a huge amount of leverage because essentially, as far as the Russians are concerned, he is irreplaceable. That doesn't really apply to Prigozhin. There is still that sense that, well, you know, fine, so Prigozhin has, I mean, no longer the 50,000 men he once disposed of, but you know, probably a bit more than 10,000 men. I mean, fair enough, that's, that, that, that's, that's enough soldiers to make you a power in the land. It's not enough to make you entirely irreplaceable because there are other mercenary units, other force commanders and such like. I think it is this difference between the fact that, as it were, Prigozhin has a, a functional strength. This is what I can do for you. Whereas Prigozhin, sorry, whereas Kadyrov has a territorial strength. This is what I control. Um, you know, Prigozhin never actually had a kind of true base of operations that, that only he could control. And that's why I think ultimately he just didn't have the muscle needed in these political struggles. Okay, thanks very much uh, for that as well. Uh, and still uh, take stock and see if anyone has any questions on the NATO summit or the mutiny. Uh, but again, if not, uh, I think at this point, could um, just give it a minute. Apologies. Um, I, I'm actually gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be the questioner once again, Mark, uh, and just ask about this meeting that was announced or apparent meeting. I mean, I guess we can't be sure it really took place, but um, uh, the Kremlin does say that. Putin met, I think it was for three hours, Peskov said, uh, Putin and Zolotov and Narishkin. Um, not sure exactly why Narishkin may be part of an effort to make it seem like there was a big uh, foreign involvement in this mutiny, but um, uh, met with, with, uh, with Prigozhin for three hours, and I believe in the Kremlin on April 29th, five days after, after the, the mutiny. So, I mean... I guess I'd just ask sort of what, 
why would they tell us this only now? And, and what is it? Is it just kind of PR or is it, um, is it a substantial, does it have meaning for this uh, situation? I mean, I think it has meaning in that it actually resolves many of these strange sort of dimensions of this. And how, how come, despite the apparent uh, deal that Prigozhin was going to exile, he's still wandering around Russia without anyone sort of trying to arrest him or, or similar. And yet at the same time, we had the FSB leaking this footage of the raid on his estate with these quite delicious um, selfies of his in various wigs and disguises. Um, and I think you know, what this demonstrates is, first of all, there was still an attempt to reach some kind of a compromise, probably over the Wagner and Concord operations in Africa. I mean, that's the thing. It's one thing about the, the Wagner fighters in Russia and Ukraine. But on the other hand, you know, th there is this massive operation largely across, but also more than just Africa, but particularly in Africa, which is not only lucrative, but also is a very useful form of, in effect, power projection for Russia, because most people there don't really see a distinction between Wagner and, and, and the Kremlin for some strange reason. So, I mean, this, this gathering, it seems to have been about 35 people, mainly um, regular military you know, people in the war, but obviously Prigozhin was there along with some of his field commanders. And I think it was an attempt to almost sort of normalise relations again. Apparently, sort of Putin treated them all to a discourse about where he thinks things have gone with the war and options for Wagner, particularly in terms of so long as they're willing to sign up and fight against Ukraine for the motherland. But as I understand it, then there was also a separate smaller meeting at which uh, Putin talked with Prigozhin. I think I understand as well as Zolotov, there was probably uh, Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, and along with Anton Vino of the presidential administration, one of the two key figures in actually brokering the deal that then Lukashenko sort of closed, shall we say, with, with Prigozhin. And I think this is this is probably where the sort of the, uh, the real terms of the... Uh, post-mutiny um, status quo were reached. Yes, Prigozhin has a bit of grace to close down businesses, uh, liquidate his assets so that he has enough money, though, frankly, I'm sure he can live, live quite cheaply in Minsk. Um, unfortunately, as he may well discover in a, in, in a sort of few months' time, you can probably die quite cheaply in Minsk too. Um, and, but, but generally sort of, you know, wrap up his affairs. But in return, A, he had to be silent. And it's worth noting that Prigozhin has actually been unaccountably quiet on social media, but that in due course, he had to go to Minsk. And I think the, what the FSB is doing is apart from just trying to undermine his popularity with these selfies and such like, but also give a signal that, look, you know, we're fine. We're giving you a bit of grace because we still want your good offices to, to run you know, Wagner abroad don't overstay your welcome. So I think th this is what's happening. It was actually a sort of the, the, the headline deal diffused the immediate crisis. But I think there were then further negotiations to try and actually nail down the detail of quite what would happen. Okay, thanks, Mark. And I believe we have one more question that's come in. Um, I think we have someone who wants to ask a question by microphone. Uh, Eric, you can ask your question. I actually posted it also on the thread there of the group. 
And uh, I have a couple of questions actually regarding NATO summit, which is coming. Uh, we have had uh, some rumors that uh, some NATO countries want Japan to join. France doesn't want it, uh, Japan to join. They would prefer to keep this at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Where do you see the future of that going? I mean, the, the, until Japan actually makes an initiative to want to join uh, and, and a, a formal application, then in a way, this, this is just kind of a, you know, a general debate. Um, I mean, that would be one hell of a step for Japan. But also, I mean, despite the fact that Japan has begun to, to kind of arm itself, I mean, again, the question is, how far is this viable? I mean, remember, the bedrock element of the NATO alliance is that an attack on one is an attack on all, and that therefore it has to be sort of credible. So there is a sort of question of, okay, well, what could Belgium or Slovakia do if Japan was attacked. So, I mean, I think it's interesting that there's these discussions taking place, and I think there may well be, you know, some some room for maybe even when Ukraine eventually joins, some major rethinking of quite what NATO is. But I think at the moment there is a sense that, look, NATO cannot become too diffuse. NATO has to have some some clear function, some clear role, and some clear sense of what it would do. And I think that, as I say, at the moment at least, Japan will be a stretch too far. But anyway, as I say, in, in, until Japan says it would like to join, NATO is not in the business of actually kind of actively trolling for new members. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks. And um, I think if you had one more question, Eric, uh, about China... Uh, uh, why don't you go ahead with that? And then yeah, essentially. Okay, we noticed during the uh, while Wagner was going marching towards Moscow, Xi Jinping mentioned very openly that he was keeping an eye on Eastern Russia, the Vladivostok area, because he considers this as ancient Chinese uh, Chinese territory. And Brzezinski, who used to be my mentor in 2016, uh, mentioned that in his view. Uh, China would definitely have its eyes set on those territories and at some point would want to claim them back. Obviously, if there's a civil war in Moscow and there, there would have been, let's say, uh, there would have been civil war in Moscow, China could have maybe, there's a good probability, secured, you know, uh, between brackets, secured that area. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Any, uh, do you see, where do you see the future going on that? If there's anything you want to mention? Yeah, I mean, I think from China's point of view, the real advantage is precisely every now and then hinting about this. I mean, as we saw this with the, the relatively recent move on maps, that, you know, territories which had been, you know, as far as China was concerned, rightly theirs, they put the Chinese name first on their maps now with the, the Russian name second. Again, just a little hint of, look, you know, we don't take us for granted and everything else. But essentially, from China's point of view, un unless the Russian Federation precisely began to sort of collapse into civil war, and you can then sort of basically establish the, you know, protectorates, shall we say, in Vladivostok and Khabarovsk and such like, I mean, up to that point, frankly, anything that the Chinese really want from, from Eastern Russia, they can buy. Um, given that 
actually any kind of military action would would presumably be regarded as a genuine existential threat to the Russian state and therefore be well within the terms of the sort of doctrinally nuclear use. And frankly, given that Russia east of the Urals is indefensible in terms of conventional forces, I mean, even when they're not sending all their available troops to fight in Ukraine, even under normal circumstances, they just cannot defend that long border. And therefore, actually, they would quite quickly have to start resorting to nuclear weapons in that context. I, I think that, you know, it's one thing for she and others to every now and then just you know, yank the, the, the Russians chain. I don't think it'll get beyond that. Thank you very much. All right. Yes. Thanks. To, uh, thank you, Mark. Um, expertise uh, all the way across across Russia. Um, thanks, Eric, for the questions. Uh, we are going to wrap it up here. Uh, Mark, thanks very much for joining me. Always a pleasure. Okay, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics and honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFERL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other podcast platforms. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening. 